Welcome everybody at all six locations and happy 4th of July weekend here at Bethany Community Church. We are thrilled and honored that you've chosen to join us to worship with us this weekend. Thank you for being here. I'm going to take a moment, we'll pray together and then begin a brand new series. Please join me in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that we can gather to worship you today, Father. And as we uh, celebrate this weekend with friends, with family, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would now in these moments teach us, Father, and shape us to be people of hope and justice and Profound love in our city, in our nation, in our world, Father, that we might uh, be used by you to allow the light of Christ to shine with greater clarity. We'll give you the glory for that, Father. We'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you, as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. I'd like to introduce you to a new series today called Summer Shorts. In this series, we're looking at some of the shortest books in the Bible, but it's significant that though the books are short, each one of these books seems to deal with a very big question. Today, we're looking at the book of Jonah as we begin the series, and the big question on the table is this. How does God clean up the areas in our lives that need cleaning up, particularly hate, apathy, maybe resistance to God's call? Make no mistake about it. You can love God, know God, and still have major areas in your heart of unconquered terrain where God has some work to do, some changing to do. All of us have this kind of dichotomy going on in our lives. And so Jonah's story reminds us of some significant things, reminds us that God loves us and our enemies, even in the midst of our blind spots, even though we have unconquered terrain in our hearts. But though God loves us, God loves us too much to allow us to remain forever wallowing in that which is destructive in our lives. So here we go. We're looking today at Jonah and teaching with me in the second half of the sermon this morning will be the most water savvy of our local lead pastor, Scott Sund, who leads Bethany North. We're going to welcome him in a few minutes here. And so what I'm going to do at the outset as we look at the book of Jonah is give you some context. I want to tell you a little bit about Jonah, a little bit about Nineveh. Those are the two, kind of two major players in this story. Jonah is a guy who shows up first in the scriptures in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. And he's mentioned there as being a prophet of God during the reign of King Jeroboam II, right? So Jonah foretold during his time as a prophet of, of this wide extent where, where the king would succeed in conquering land and taking back the promised land, the expansion of Israel's territory. And as Jonah prophesied very quickly, the, prophe the prophecies that Jonah made were fulfilled. So Jonah was wildly popular, right? He must have enjoyed great popular respect as a true prophet. So here's Jonah in a nutshell. Does he know God? Yes. Does he love God? Yes. Is he willing to follow God wherever God sends him? Well, <laughs> uh, let's take a look. But before that, let's look at Nineveh. So Nineveh is a city, uh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians really were, they were basically the ISIS of their day or the Nazis of their day. By the time Jonah speaks around 655 BC, they've become a superpower. And for a couple of centuries, they've been expanding their territory through the violent overthrow of other lands. And when I say violent, I mean the kind of ruthless treachery that makes onlookers hate them. And fear them. People are ter it's terror, actually. I want to quote now from one commentator who says this. When the Ninevites would conquer a city, they would gather all the oldest men and gouge, uh, gouge their eyes out. And then they'd brutally murder the women and children so that the men were forced to hear their cries before the men, too, were murdered. You can imagine just how much people hated them because of the brutality of their conquering mentality. And so they spread terror throughout the Middle East and had been doing so for a couple of centuries and this is evidenced in the archaeological record and in the books of First and Second Kings in the Bibles. You can read about it. 
Now, all of us in the room know this. Uh, when you watch a movie and you see the evil villain or a group of evil people, if you're like me, you find that hatred is rising up in your heart, and the one thing that you want to see is you want to see that victim destroyed. I mean, this happens to all of us in the room. When bad things happen to us, we want to see the perpetrator suffer. And everyone in the nation of Israel hated the Assyrians that way. They wanted to see them destroyed, annihilated, but not just annihilated. They would rejoice if they suffered as badly as the victims of the crimes that they'd committed. So they, everybody hated the Assyrians, and Nineveh is representative of all Assyria because Nineveh is a capital. So the problem with this kind of thinking is pretty clear from the perspective of God. A response of hatred always means there'll be a cycle of violence that never ends. Violence is not solved by violence. MLK understood this. Gandhi understood this. The Amish understood this. Uh, when they forgave Charles Roberts after shooting and uh, ki killing a room full of Amish school children. Pastor Gahiji understood this in Rwanda. He lost 143 uh, family members and he refused to retaliate. Instead, choosing to forgive, understanding this very vital principle that love will triumph over violence eventually. Do we understand this? I, I suspect that we likely don't because many of us in the room, most of us, all of us in the room are baptized into a culture that actually glorifies violence and loves retribution. It's the theme of every major blockbuster summer movie. And does it matter that we live this way, glorifying violence? I would say it matters more than we realize. We're told that each of us are invited on a journey of transformation and that means God will reveal blind spots, one of which is seen here in this story. And God will reveal blind spots so that we can respond and better represent the character of Christ in our lives, representing Christ to our city, our nation, our world. And so today, four truths we learn about the trans transformative process uh, that we see in this text in the book of Jonah. And here's the first truth. The call that God has on your life, the call does not equal passion. Let me read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it. Their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose, and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we're going to stop right there and look at this. Nineveh is to the north, Tarshish exactly the opposite direction, as far away as possible, and that tells me that when God calls Jonah, in spite of the fact that Jonah knows God, loves God, belongs to God, and is loved by God, in this particular moment, Jonah is actively resisting the call of God in his life. He hated the Ninevites, and we understand why. The people he loved hated the Ninevites. The Ninevites were, in fact, in the mind of the whole world, worthy of hatred, worthy of judgment, worthy of destruction, worthy of a violent end to their empire. And now God wants to give them a, a chance to repent? No way. I'm not going. And, he, and so he gets on a ship and he goes the other way. The hatred in Jonah's heart has clouded his judgment. And here's the other thing that clouds his judgment, and that clouds our judgment sometimes, in moments when God has a call on our life and asks us to do something very specific, sometimes our judgment is clouded by the notion that God's path, God's will, God's call on my life is always going to align with my desires. One author says it this way, God's will for your life, God's call on your life is where your deep gladness and the world's need meet. And I'm just here to tell you, not always. Moses, Exodus chapter 4, 
when God calls Moses to return to Egypt, here's Moses' conclusion. Hey, please, Lord, send someone else. I don't want to go. In John 21, Jesus has a word for Peter. That's where Jesus says, hey, Peter, uh, in the past you did whatever you wanted to do, but the day is coming uh, when in the future, by virtue of your devotion to me, you will be led to places that you don't want to go. And then here's Jesus' summary statement. In spite of the fact that you don't want to go there, follow me. I have a plan for you, and it won't always be what you want to do. In Acts chapter 17, Jesus says to the apostle Paul in a dream, hey, yes, I understand it. I know that you want to serve the Jews, but I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. Richard, I know you love the mountains. I'm sending you to the city. Donna, I know that you said you'd never live in Los Angeles, but you married Richard, and I'm calling him to go study in Los Angeles. I know you want six figures, but I'm calling you to work in a small nonprofit. I know you want health, but in this moment, I'm calling you to walk through a valley of illness. I know that you want a marriage filled with intimacy, but in this moment, I'm calling you to do the hard work that is necessary to tell truth in your marriage, and in the short run, it won't be more intimate. It'll be very difficult. I'm calling you to do the right thing, not the comfortable thing. We need to learn this. I have a friend who was working at Microsoft, working at Sun Microsystems. Eventually, he started a nonprofit called MUST, uh, which is about mentoring urban students and teens. Uh, did he want to do it? Eventually, yes. But he was called to leave something that he loved to do God's will. Everyone has a calling aspect to their lives that will require them to say, not my will, but yours be done. Because remember, we're following the footsteps of Christ. And that's, that's Christ's paradigm. Not my will, but yours be done. If we do a cost-benefit analysis before moving into God's will, or if we insist on holding on to our dreams and our prejudices and our lusts and our demands on God, we'll find ourselves exactly in the same space as Jonah on the next ship heading away from God's story. Away from God's call. Away from God's will. Understand this. Calling does not equal passion. Now, there's a second aspect to the story, a second truth. And that's this. Disobedience does not equal abandonment. So Jonah is running from the will of God, right? And look at what God does. He gets on a ship, Jonah. goes down. To, he's heading down to Tarshish, running from the presence of the Lord, right? Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, and the ship was about to break up. And so what happens in response to disobedience is something profound from God's perspective. God raises up a storm. The ship is threatened. Sailors begin throwing stuff overboard, but that doesn't help. So they wake up Jonah, and they say to Jonah, hey, call on your God. Maybe your God will save us. And eventually, Jonah confesses that he's the one to blame for the mess that they're in because he knows that he was running away from the call of God on his life. He's been disobedient. And then what's very interesting to me is Jonah then says to them, hey, throw me overboard, and maybe the storm will end. I mean, he'd rather die in the ocean than repent, offer a prayer repentance, wait for the storm to end, and then return and go preach in Nineveh. So he'd rather be dead than preach to people he hates. So what happens? Well, uh, they toss Jonah into the ocean, and immediately the sea is calm, and then they begin to worship, and then a fish swallows Jonah. Now let me make some kind of significant observations here for just for a minute, because sometimes when we read the, 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 the story of Jonah... 
we moralize it this way. Look, if you don't obey God, something really bad is going to happen to you. You're going you're to get swallowed by a fish or you're going you're to get a grave disease or you're going to get an automobile accident or something like that. And I'm here to say to you, that's rubbish. Let me make some critical observations about this text, looking at it uh, through a different lens, right? First of all, observation number one, the sailors who tossed Jonah into the ocean, when the ocean became still, they began to praise the Lord. They became believers, as a result of this event. Second, the great fish that swallowed Jonah isn't a way of judging Jonah. It's a way of saving Jonah. He would have drowned otherwise. Third, his three days of wallowing around in the, whale of the, uh, in the belly of the whale becomes a place of transformation for him. Because instead of running from God, uh, Jonah's actually worshiping God now. And Jonah's crux statement is in verse 9 when he says this, Salvation comes from the Lord. Know that when he says this, he's not talking about going to heaven. He's saying, I will worship God because what I have learned through this experience is that deliverance from evil happens in this world. And whenever, whenever deliverance from evil happens in this world, the source of that deliverance is God. Every time. Every single time. And so then here's what happens. In chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10, the fish vomits Jonah up and he ends up on, on the land. Let me just make a quick application before turning this over to Scott. In the Bible, we read about God's discipline. We read about God's judgment. We read about the realities that we live in a fallen world and just bad things happen. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the trouble comes when we try and figure out whether a particular event that has come into our lives is judgment or discipline or just the fact that we live in a fallen world. Because here's the reality. It doesn't matter whether it's judgment, discipline, or just the realities of living in a fallen world. The promise of Scripture is this. God will use everything, every event in our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ if we respond to the event in our lives by going back to God and loving God in the midst of the event. This is the teaching of Romans 8. And what this means is I never need to say to God or to, to myself in my own heart, I never need to say, man, if only this hadn't happened and live a life of regret and bitterness. I never need to do that. Instead, in spite of um, my father dying, in spite of abandonment, and in your case, in spite of a failed marriage, in, in, in spite of infertility, in spite of the loss of a child, in spite of the hard things and difficult things that happen in our lives, we never need to say if only. What we can say is this. Thank you, God, not that this happened, but thank you, God, that you and your amazing mercy and wisdom can use even this terrible event to make me look more like Jesus. That's exactly what happens in the life of Jonah, as we'll see when the story continues. Scott, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. You're following along in your Bibles. Uh, Richard just took us through Jonah 1 and 2, and I get the privilege of walking with us through Jonah 3 and 4. And we get the last verse of chapter 2 where Jonah was literally spit onto dry land. He's back in dry land after three days of being in a fish, and we don't know what he smells like, but it's probably awful. As a fisherman, I tell you, three days in a fish is not good. And we don't know where he is, but it's interesting to notice that where he set off from. Now, Jonah was, was raised in this town, Gaffer, about five kilometers 
kilometers north of Nazareth. And when he first got the call in his life to head to Nineveh, it was more than 500 miles, but around five to 600 miles east to Nineveh that God was calling him. And instead, as Richard said, Jonah headed west. He headed west to Tarshish, which at the time, scholars think, was about 2,500 miles, kind of the edge of the known world. He headed to the wild west. And it's amazing where he's, he, he's, he's been and he's repented, but you look on a map at the distance where God was calling him and where he was running to. And oftentimes, friends, the shortest route to your preferred future is the place where God is sending you. And we can run and we can run and we can head west and we can try to move in our own desires or in fear or in apathy and we're moving to this westward location and God is saying, the shortest route to where I can use you is go east. Go to Nineveh and I understand this third truth for you this morning is our calling moves us to hard places. Jonah, we understand this is a hard calling to be sent into the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. But, but he, God is calling him to go east into uncertainty, to go east into the uncomfortable, to go east into the unknown. For there, God says, in going east, I will be with you. And it's true that when we go east in our lives, when we embrace the difficult relationship, when we embrace the difficult call to purity, when we embrace the sin that so easily entangles, when we, when we go east in the places where God is moving us, that we do not go alone. We see this in, in Moses' story where in Exodus 4 where Moses is, is trying to discern the call to go east. Though here it's, he's actually heading west from the desert back in Egypt. But go with me a bit. But in the, in the going east moment, Moses is saying, no God, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. Moses says to God, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I'll help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. And so friends, this morning, if this sounds a little bit like your story, you've been kind of taking the long route into the Tarshish, God is encouraging you this morning to, 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 to go east and embrace the difficult places that he wants to send us because there's nowhere we can run that God is not with us and for us. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Go east. And so we have here in Nineveh, uh, I'm sorry, in Jonah 3, where he embraces the call, where this third truth, his calling moves us to hard places. The, Jonah 3, 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so Jonah goes. The Lord in his grace and mercy gives Jonah a second chance to, to, to listen. And verse 2, a great city, Nineveh, there's a double entendre. It's both great in its size. Scholars say greater Nineveh in that time would be a three-day walk. It's, it, it's 60 miles wide, huge, but it's also important because God values cities. And the word city in the Old Testament is used over 1,000 times. We have a gospel moving us right to the core of the city, saying we should care about God's people, even in forsaken places. 
And so verse 3, Jonah obeys. He finally obeys. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went. Two things I want you to see here when Jonah obeys in Jonah 3. First is this, he was ready to be changed because he had spent time in prayer. Jonah prays in Jonah 2 inside the, the belly of the whale to change his own heart. And it's remarkable because many of us pray our situations will change. But Jonah really models here in Jonah 2 that his heart would be changed. And that's really big for us to hear. When you find yourself in a storm, in the midst of a situation or a challenge or unforeseen outlook, I want to encourage you to pray more, not less, and pray that your heart would be changed. And the second thing that you'll see here when Jonah listens is that the evangelism of sharing God's good news with the world in the city and the country is found not in our strength, but in our weakness. And this comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this is the Jonah principle. Like this is huge, friends. Don't miss this because this remarkable thing happens where for Jonah, his obedience leads to influence. Where the, the obedience where he finally says yes to God, it leads to a mass influence because he says yes and he heads into Nineveh and he walks one day into this massive city and he proclaims God's good news in in Jonah 3 Jonah began by going a day's journey and he proclaims 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown interesting because in the ancient Hebrew he actually speaks five words Five words in the midst of the greatest size city uh, of, of antiquity and an entire culture is changed. Five words. Not the power of Jonah's words, but the power of Jonah knowing his brokenness, knowing how much he needed God to work through him. And Nineveh believes if you look at verse 5 of chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from greatest to the least put on sackcloth and it's just absolutely amazed that the influence we crave is on the far side of our brokenness and in turn our obedience and so we're able to share God's transformational power not in our strength but out of our weakness out of the, out of the marriage that didn't make it out of the personal loss and tragedy that so many of us have borne you're qualified for ministry not because you're blemish free but because you know that God can use you yet still. Jonah models that so beautifully. He goes east. Go east, friends, into your addiction. Go east into the situation with your family that's breaking your heart right now. Go east and know that God is with you. Last week, Bethany was privileged to send a group of, of riders from, from, from this community that literally went east on their bikes to Walla Walla and the Tri-Cities and up to Spokane to raise money for, for, for refugees. They said, we want to make a difference in, in the world. And they raised with some other uh, people, like-minded people in Seattle, over $300,000, all that will go to fund refugees. Amazing. Go East. And the fourth truth from this text, from this powerful little book with this deep meaning for us is this truth I want to give you from chapter four, that mercy challenges angry hearts. That the mercy of God challenges angry hearts. Look at Jonah four, verses one through three. But to Jonah, there's this transformation going on. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. 
And this is where this book uh, turns surprisingly human because it's, it's surprising, but we see some of our own story here, a story that become very, very protective and self-interested. And if we're honest, we can be, we can be tribalistic. And, and so he becomes angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And so Jonah has this angry heart. The, the, the Hebrew word here is ha-ra, which indicates a blaze of anger. He's, he's very angry that God would show mercy to the enemies of his own nation. And so he goes outside the city. He literally goes to sit outside Nineveh to, to wait out the 40th day to see what would happen. Because it's interesting though we get as readers, verse 10 of chapter 3, that God saw what they did and how he turned from their evil ways. Jonah doesn't. See, when we, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, we have no idea how the seed is working and growing. We, we don't know. And so Jonah, he goes outside the city walls to kind of await, you know, this, this kind of fire from heaven. He's ready for God to destroy his enemies, and it doesn't happen because, because God gives mercy to the people of Nineveh. And then this bizarre scene happens at the end of Jonah 4. Because God asked him, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Or another way, it was actually God is saying, do you have any right to be angry with my mercy? Do you have any right to question my ways? Do you have any right to second guess the God of the universe? Well, that's deeply, deeply convicting to me. Because if you're like me, we can fall into spaces and seasons where we're angry with God. Even the righteous among us can get angry with God. And God asked Jonah point blank, do you have any right? The answer is no. And, and Jonah is, is, is angry at the grace at which God has showered on the people of Nineveh. He's forgiven them completely because they repent of their ways. And it's hard for, for Jonah to receive this. But we are, friends, we are to be recipients of God's scandalous mercy for us. That while still in sin, that God would forgive us and call us his own. That he would love us and, and to receive us fully restored by the cross. And of course he wants to shower that same grace and mercy on the people of Nineveh. But, but Jonah has trouble receiving Think of Micah 6.8, that we're to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. That we are called to be reconcilers, which means we love those that are not our natural brother and sister. The, the church is not a country club. This is not the church of Jesus Christ who, who, who all of us got it right. No, we are called to be Jew and Gentile, white and black and brown and all shades between. That We are going to be reconciling between activists and, and the police force in our city, between protesters and politicians. Reconcilers, preaching Jesus Christ, bringing hope to the hopeless. And for Jonah, God challenges him, selective mercy is no mercy at all. And Jonah has a trouble receiving that God would give mercy to his enemies. But friends, I want to encourage you, the best stories are those written in the midst of enemy territory. The best stories of God's grace are those written in the midst of enemy territory. Think of Acts 10, Peter preaching the gospel of grace to his friend Cornelius in the midst of, of the Roman army base. 
Or Matthew 9, where Jesus looked on the non-believers with compassion, it says, as lambs without a shepherd. This passage has something to teach us about race and fear and the way in which the gospel is radically calling us to reconcile with people that don't look like us from different countries, from different parts of the country, from, from different parts of our own neighborhoods, that we are people of grace and mercy reconciling, sent on this mission. And so there's this, this interesting scene at the end of Jonah 4 where a plant grows up over Jonah for comfort as he's sitting out there in his depression and his anger. And then the plant withers and dies and, and Jonah is heartbroken for this plant and God says, guess what? You love the plant, I love the people more than the plant. And God had the first word in Jonah when he said, go. And now God will have the last word in Jonah where he asks again, is it any right for you to be angry? There's 120,000 people down there, Jonah, and I care for them all. Friends, does your heart break for people in our city that don't know Jesus yet? Does your heart ache for, for the way in which society can be at war with one another? And is your hope in the gospel to be the reconciling power to, 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 to meld us together? That we might proclaim God's power despite our earthly differences. And so in contrast to, to Jonah pouting outside the city gates, we have the book of Hebrews, our suffering service Jesus who was dragged outside the city, willing to look with compassion on the city and give his life, not just for judgment, but for salvation of all. And the book of Hebrews says that, so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. How's your heart this morning, friends? Do you have anger in your heart? Do you have bitterness? And is there, is there places in which you're holding on to, to, to your old plan or your old relationships or your old ways you wanted God to work? And is God asking you this weekend to just let it go and trust him and to head east into, into the challenges that await? He will be with us in the midst of these difficult callings to be reconciling agents. Challenge the angry heart. I recently had somebody kind of speak a word into my life, and it was, it was troubling. They said, hey, I feel like a part of your heart is angry. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm good. I'm, I'm out there doing stuff for others. I'm trying to be a good husband and father. I don't get it. And, and then they, they spoke more clarity. And they said, any part of your heart not given over to the hope of the gospel slowly turns cold and gray and angry. Are there places of your heart that you've stopped hoping for the gospel to change? Are there places in relationship, in our culture, society? I mean, you can take this anywhere it needs to go. Is the Lord asking this morning, let go of the anger and accept the difficult call to be an agent of reconciliation. We will not go from our own strength. We will go as recipients of what God has already done for us. Uh, and that's really where we go next in conclusion. 
that this is the gospel story, that, that Jonah ultimately is this, is this great little book, this powerful little book about calling and about identity and about mercy, and it really becomes about mission, that we are called to go out of, out of this call to be merciful, and this recipient, what God has done for us, he's calling us, God is calling each and every one of us in the room to, to be stepping out in faith, and going east into hard situations. And that has been the legacy of the church. It was interesting when the, the first several centuries of the church growth, the church was known as this amazing place of outreach and mission for the very least of these in our society. And no other place did, they, did we see this more than in Alexandria, where in Alexandria, because of the plagues, that there was, no, there was no care system for people that were dying, and people were dying and being stacked like cordwood in the streets, and children of the dead were literally tossed into the streets because nobody was able to take care of them. And everyone else was heading out of town and the Christians were heading into town. And the early church, the women deacons would go on baby hunts where they would literally walk up and down the streets of Alexandria looking for little ones to love. And get this, I mean, this is, this is the church. This is your legacy as a believer in Jesus Christ. These women deacons would find the babies and then they would head to the center of town, the center of the marketplace. They would sit under the statue of Zeus and then they would be, they would be nursemaids for these babies. They would give their own milk to sustain these children while the male deacons would go finding more alive kids, finding more, on a mission for more, that, that, that we would be full of Christ's grace and mercy, loving others. And do you know that was the reputation of the early church? One church father, Tertullian, said of the Roman Empire, they would look on the early church and remark how they love each other. Or Justin Martyr recorded this, that, that we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Don't miss it. Not out of our goodness or our strength or our abundance, but because of Christ. Because of Christ. May the words of Jonah encourage you today, church. Go. Go east into difficult situations. Live into a calling to embrace the difficult. You do not walk alone. And your brokenness will be strength. And that we are to be reconcilers for mercy's sake. Or in the words of God to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2, go. Let me pray for us as a church. Holy Lord God, thank you so much for these old texts becoming new again in the preaching and the listening of your people. Encourage us to, to go east, Lord, into those difficult situations that await, into those places of calling and conflict that can feel so over, overwhelming, quite frankly, Lord, if we feel like we go alone. Lord Jesus, may your spirit dwell in us and may we walk in faith that you are calling us as agents of reconciliation and mercy and mission to be people that love well. Thank you, God, for the work that you'll do in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen.